Welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for this Wednesday, November the 3rd, 2021. My name is Tom Hollingsworth and a happy National Sandwich Day to everyone out there in our community. Uh, we are bringing you the news of the week that is uh, creative, creatively nestled between two pieces of bread um, in bite-sized formats, really, because that's what we do here over your lunchtime on the Gestalt IT Rundown as we, we try to give you a little um, uh, sustenance with the news. Uh, joining me this week is a friend and special guest for this episode, Mr. Chris Grundeman. Chris, what is your favorite sandwich? Uh, grilled cheese, absolutely. I, I, I think my kids and you could probably go out and have a great time. Uh, me personally, huge fan of Philly cheese, but it's got to be the whiz kind. Can't do the provolone. Um, speaking of sandwiches and speaking of food, we are going to dive right in to the first story of the week, which has to do with uh, Wall Street's favorite food of choice, which is, of course, revenues and profits, because Western Digital reported last week that they had a really big quarter. Their revenue was up 29%, which is just about double of what their previous quarter's revenue was. However, the looming specter of the Halloween supply chain issues is going to be causing some more problems up front. How do we know that? Well, CEO David Geckler was very positive in citing the fact that there has been strong demand as the driver for all of these increased revenues. But ooh, look out, because the supply chain was causing problems and will probably continue to cause problems for several quarters going forward, as we have heard in numerous technology stories over the last few weeks. Um, the projection for WD's next quarter is to come in around $4.8 billion in revenue, plus or minus a couple million dollars there, but really who's counting? Um, you know, Chris, here's the funny thing, because we kind of, we hinted at it a little bit. Is WD kind of an outlier here because uh, David Geckler is like, hey, look out, we're gonna have a lot of supply chain issues. Or is this just a recurring theme that a lot of these companies are starting to see problems where they're having to shut down production of, of other devices or they're having to reopen fabs in different locations? And this is just going to be something we're dealing with for the next 18 months. Yeah, Tom, it does not seem isolated at all. Um, and even even far beyond IT, right? I mean, there, there's shortages with cars and, and with all kinds of consumer goods along with electronics. And, and there's a number of reasons for it, right? Um, you know, just anecdotal, you can look at this and say, you know, the New York Times did not have a supply chain desk uh, before the pandemic. And now they actually have a whole uh, news organization set up to cover these kinds of issues. Um, so you can see how widespread it is just anecdotally from that, I think. Uh, but, but there's a number of, of, of things that have gone on here. One, uh, factories in a lot of countries that supply things, these types of um, materials shut down for a long time because of the pandemic. And then um, there's some other wrinkles here, which is interesting. Uh, China actually sent a bunch of safety equipment to countries that don't sell things back to China. Um, so a lot of places in Africa and other places in India, these containers were sent out. And um, the way containers work is you usually unload them and then you load them back up with other goods and, and they get they kind of move around with the supply chain. Um, but because we diverted all these containers to places they don't normally go, they're now kind of stuck there in some cases. Um, and then also because there's limited warehouse space because consumer demands in the United States have blown up, they're using containers at the docks to store things. Um, and then also apparently the, the frames that carry the containers from the dock to the warehouse uh, are in short supply. So there's just, there's just this cascading level of failures on all kinds of, of areas. Um, not to mention that you know within the factories themselves, um, advanced chemicals that are needed to, to kind of move through, they don't get made all in one place, right? And so you, you make it in one factory and then another one and another one. And so if, if one ingredient somewhere along the way is missing, uh, the whole thing kind of grinds to a halt. 
Uh, that's coupled with a lot of companies uh, running lean manufacturing and, and lean warehousing. And so there's not a big buffer for most of these technology companies. Uh, when there's a shortage on one piece, they don't have a warehouse full of them, right? Um, the, 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 a dollar saved from not storing extra supplies has meant you know, bonuses for executives or dividends or higher share prices. And so it just was not built into the system uh, economically to have the, to have a be able to survive a shock like this. So so it's not just Western Digital. It is widespread, and it does seem like it's going to continue for for quite a while. In in other news, uh, the crackdown on malware uh, continues. Uh, luckily, Europol announced last week that they have arrested twelve suspects that they claim were part of a professional group that has been attacking targets and ransoming them since two thousand nineteen. Uh, these arrests happened in the Ukraine and Switzerland, and they swept up members of crews that were behind Locker Goga. Mega Cortex and Dharma. Uh, also of note is that the, some of the people that were caught weren't just the hackers themselves, but were also involved in money laundering um, and uh, getting laundering that money that, that came from, from targets that paid up to get their systems unlocked. This crew is reportedly responsible for shutting down Norwegian aluminum processor Hydro Norsk in 2019 for almost a week. Uh, Tom, are law enforcement agencies finally starting to fight back against ransomware? I, when I read this story, which came from Catalan Campano, which, by the way, if you don't follow Catalan Campano, you absolutely need to click on the link in the show notes and you can go over to the, the blog that he uh, posts a lot of this stuff. I thought it was really interesting for two reasons. One, completely European operation. So Europol cracked down on these guys. And, and given the fact that they actually shut down Hydro Norsk for like a week, that's a lot of Coke cans that went Un, unsold um so that's like that that's one of those targets you know for us it would be like the the colonial pipeline or the the meat processing facility but more importantly and, and again i have to come back to um woodward and bernstein follow the money this wasn't just a crackdown of crews that were you know deploying um you know crypto lockers and and using uh, all these you know alphabet soup toolkits to be able to exploit users it was that they got the people who were laundering the bitcoins now the other thing you have to understand is that there were arrests made in ukraine by and large when you hear eastern european in a press release it's a clever way of saying russia but not russia and specifically in this case it's ukraine which is not russia but still close enough to have influence and i know that there's a lot of political tensions there and i'm not going to go into it because i don't want to see the comment section if i do but the the long and short of it is is that a lot of the eastern european crews operate out of that area because they kind of have carte blanche to do it but they also got picked up in switzerland and what would people be using switzerland for because it's a neutral country oh it's full of banks too and so i think that that's what we're going to start seeing because if you remember just a few weeks ago we talked about what happened with the uh, Proton VPN situation where uh, a, a French group got a subpoena and a warrant, I think it was a warrant, uh, to unmask a user and they did it in Switzerland and Proton VPN was like, listen, we talk about being the paragons of privacy, but if you subpoena us or give it, uh, file a warrant in Switzerland, we have to comply. And I think that's what you're going to start seeing from Europol is they're not just going to go after the cruise. They're going to go to Switzerland and go after the cruise bank accounts. And if they can prove that you've been laundering ransomware payments, they're going to nail you to the wall with physical bitcoins and i hear those things hurt because they are like they're like uh tungsten they're really 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 dense um and and when you're nailed to the wall with those you're not coming down easily and we've seen this because 
it's a coordinated effort amongst law enforcement agencies to go after the crews and get the people because we've seen that over and over again with the crew that did colonial and with the Revil crew they hit big and then went to ground immediately you know just like any good spy you make noise and you disappear for a while because prey is distinguished through movement the problem is is that the law enforcement agencies are getting so smart right now that they're going out they've identified these crews ahead of time they're waiting for them to make their next misstep and then they're going to lock everything down and by locking down their bank accounts before they do anything else by getting the financiers you're getting rid of the fences so the stolen goods can't be sold and then they're worthless if you can't do anything about it so i think that this is just the first step in a larger coordinated organ uh, you know thing the fact that i had to google the three names of these these crypto locking crews <clears throat> before we put them in the show notes tells you that they weren't going after the big fish yet but they are getting the bait ready all right um let's talk a little bit about chip news um and specifically our friends over at intel because last week they announced that they're going to be focusing on their latest generation of server gpus and they're trying to capitalize on a super hot market um, the first generation of those server GPUs, uh, which you may know as the, and I'm going to butcher this name, is it, it's XEHP. It might be pronounced she, she HP. They never formally introduced those as being available for commercial sale. Um, now, the funny thing is, is that the we got some comments from Raja Kaduri, who's the SVP and GM of the Accelerated Systems and Graphics Group. Basically, he's the guy who resurrected Intel's GPUs uh setup over there um i think it's after pat came in or just shortly before um but the funny thing is also that all of this was made on twitter and he says that it appears that the shp was actually more of like a tech preview to get one api working for all of the developers and they realized that maybe it's better if they go with the second generation project which is um ponta vecchio which they're calling she hpc and ARC, which they're calling SHE-HPG, and they're both targeted at different markets regarding flexibility and ease of use and programming and things like that. It does seem a little bit curious that they're going to be willing to cancel a shipping physical product line. Like, they were ready to send this thing out the door. They had the chips. They were ready to go. These have been fabbed at TSMC. But the analysts are starting to say that maybe the reason why this thing got binned in the long run is because that you're starting to see new releases from NVIDIA and AMD that are second generation technology for the server GPU market. And Intel would have basically been releasing a competitor that was already behind the curve while they're getting the new ones ready to go. Chris, does Intel realistically have a chance to compete in this market? They are a distant third to start with, and they haven't even started yet. Yeah, it's a really good point. I, I do think that Intel has a lot going for them, obviously. Um, you know, their, their chip portfolio is extremely broad. They've got a bunch of software backing that up. Um, the one API stuff you talked about, that possibly they were using the XEHP chip to, to kind of at least expand and pioneer and bring into AI and, and bring into GPU world, um, it is super, super powerful. And I think that Intel has done a really good job of kind of pushing this, you know, they call it the, the edge to cloud story. And, and they're doing a really good job with, with broadening the portfolio and pulling software to tie it together and providing the APIs and SDKs and everything you need to develop on, on Intel. And so there's a lot of people that are really committed to this Intel ecosystem. And I think that if they can get the GPU they need from Intel, uh, that that's a real option for a lot of people. 
Uh, what's interesting here is my understanding is the XEHP chip that's now been shelved, apparently, was actually being manufactured by Intel, right, in their 10 nanometer um, foundries. Whereas the new XEHPC and HPG chips are from TSMC, so they, they're actually an external manufacturing, which, which that's, that's, that's interesting. And I don't know, I mean, I don't want to speculate too far into, again, you know, why Intel made these specific moves. Uh, as you said, potentially it's because the HP chip was, was too far behind, um, but maybe it has something to do with, with the manufacturing and the capacity. Um, kind of relating back to some of the early stories we talked about, right? There may be some, some issues they had with being able to ship the chips. I don't know. Um, again, just kind of guessing there. But anyway, uh, to your question, I do think Intel has a chance here. Um, they definitely have a lot of room, uh, a lot of area to catch up on, but uh, you know, they, they've done it before. Um, speaking of new technology hitting the, the street this week, uh, Juniper just had an analyst and investor event and uh, they, the, the, this networking giant has moved into a new realm. Uh, they, have, they obviously acquired MIST systems quite a while back and they've now added some new access points to that lineup. Uh, two new entrants that provide support for the six gigahertz spectrum. The AP34 and the AP45 are tri-band access points with support for all three authorized wireless frequencies. The AP45 also includes support for Juniper's virtual Bluetooth LE location technology uh, and enhanced location, which provides enhanced location tracking uh, for the enterprise. Um, Tom, is, is this big news for the tech giant? I think it is. And maybe not for the reason that you might consider so for those of you out there who are probably not 125 percent familiar with um, the way that wireless technologies work is that all wireless bands have to be lost licensed and authorized in the us by the fcc and so opening those bands up has always been kind of a challenge so you know 2.4 is where we started even though technically five gigahertz was the first band that was available for use for wi-fi but we had challenges in the five gigahertz spectrum because of things like weather radar um, there was a huge um, challenge of whether or not we were going to be able to open up certain frequencies because radar sites operated on them and it turns out that they you're able to do it under certain conditions and then we wanted to go to six gigahertz and there's been this huge push and you know that I'm not the world's biggest fan of Ajit Pai and his ridiculously oversized coffee mug. But the one thing that he did do right was authorize the use of six gigahertz in the Wi-Fi spectrum. Now, obviously, because those radios are on two completely different spectrums, you're going to need new radios. And that means new chipsets. And that means new access points. And that means you're going to have to ramp up production. Boy, have there been any challenges to ramping up production in the last 18 months? I can't remember. Let me check my calendar. The fact that a lot of companies are kind of taking this approach of let's wait until there's a client device on the market that can really take advantage of six gigahertz, which is being styled as Wi-Fi 6E in the market, means that you have the cart and horse problem. So Samsung has already released a Wi-Fi 6E capable cell phone. Is that a big enough driver to get me to start installing Wi-Fi 6E APs? Or is the fact that I'm installing Wi-Fi 6E capable APs a driver to go look at devices that are Wi-Fi 6E capable. The biggest challenge right now is that Apple does not have a Wi-Fi 6E capable client device on the market. They have Wi-Fi 6 capable client devices, which uh, for you tech nerds out there is 802.11x in the 2.4 and 5 gigahertz spectrum. I actually did an entire conversations episode on this last year if you wanna kind of break down what the E's and the not E's and the AX's and the AC's mean. But the short, 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 short version is, is that there are companies that have been shipping these APs for a few months. Aruba and uh, Extreme come to mind. 
And when you ship something that nobody else does, the first thing you want to do is take out your hammer and start beating on your competition saying, where's your stuff? Where's your stuff? And the companies that haven't started shipping it yet are like, we're waiting to see because we don't want to abandon this access point line and you'll have to throw it out because we actually did see that when Wi-Fi 6, 802.11ax first came out. There were people shipping those APs that then almost within a couple of months, they were end of life, end of support because the better chipsets came out. For Juniper to have announced that they are shipping a tri-band AP for use by customers means that they're ready to get on board with this. It also means that it carries full support of the Juniper Mist back in, so you get all of the great software support. As Bob Friday is fond of saying, Marvis will play as much Jeopardy as you want to play. It will tell you everything you need to know about your network and how to fix it. The two different AP models basically break down to an indoor, two radio, two space or two antenna, two spatial streams set up two by two by two. And the bigger radio, the AP45, is a four by four by four, four radios and four spatial streams. Um, and there's some discussion about external APs, internal APs, how you're going to space these things out. Here's the short version. If you are looking to spec out your next AP replacement in your enterprise, you need to be considering Wi-Fi 6E. Not, not a, a for sure buy yet. You need to be considering it. And I'm, when I say considering your replacement, we're looking at a year timeline. You're, you're, you're starting to put together technical requirements for a bid and stuff like that. If you just replaced your stuff with Wi-Fi 6 capable APs, don't worry about it. You've still got a couple more years before the client devices become pervasive enough for you to need that specific spectrum allocation. Because right now, if you can't see it, you don't have anything you can use it, you're not missing out on anything. So wait until your next refresh cycle. But you do not need to rush out and buy them today. And I know that any company that makes these is probably going to be screaming right now going, Tom, why did you tell them not to go buy the stuff? Because right now you need to do an assessment of your of your user base and decide if this investment is worth it. I will say that I have full faith that Juniper's AP lineup, the 34 and the 45, are not going to be end of life by the end of the year or even by the end of next year. These are things that are going to be consistent. They're going to be built well enough to be in production for quite a while. And I have the faith that with the software driving behind the, the scenes that anybody who starts bringing in new Wi-Fi 6E capable devices, maybe the next iPad, maybe the next MacBook Air will have one of those chips in it, um, not the new MacBook Pros, obviously, um, that you're going to be able to increase the speed of those devices. But more importantly, you're going to be able to remove congestion in your network because you're going to have things playing in that band that nobody else does. And that's going to be a huge boon in the future for industries that need isolated communications, like healthcare. But we're not there yet. But the more APs that we deploy that have these radios in them, the closer we're going to be. So I think that overall, this is a positive move, not just for the folks at Juniper, but for the industry as a whole. And I can't wait to have to buy a new iPad with a Wi-Fi 6E radio in it. All right, Chris, we had a closer look story that we really wanted to tackle in. And let's be fair, this is a closer look story that we've been waiting for for years because the biggest news of the last months is finally arrived. And that is that VMware is single once again. They've been spun out from the behemoth that is Dell EMC. The news, which we 
pretty much knew was going to happen back in April because they tipped it big time was that Dell Technologies is selling off their 81% stake in VMware. Now, that means that there was a special dividend that was paid out of around $11.5 billion. That works out to be about $27.40 per share if my back of the envelope math works out. My back of the envelope math also says that if Dell Technologies was the 81% stakeholder and they got an $11.5 billion dividend, they got about $9 billion out of the deal, which is a pretty fair amount of money. So what are they going to do with this? They're going to go buy a Tesla. They're going to buy a camping trailer. No, they're going to use it to pay down debt, just like any other reasonable um, consumer should, is to take windfalls and use them to pay out your, your debt requirements. Um, and $9 billion worth of debt pay down is, is pretty important because um, Michael Dell is in a lot of debt after this whole acquisition. Between him and Silver Lake, there is a significant amount of debt that he owes and paying down $9 billion of it, as well as getting rid of the VMware debt off of his balance sheet, well, the hope is, is that that makes the remaining debt in Dell and Dell Technologies look mighty rosy to some new investors that are looking for investment grade debt, which I still haven't figured out how that works. I'm investing in other people's debt, but okay, sure. Um, and, but just in case you thought that VMware was off to college and was living its best life and it was ready to be its own person, Daddy Michael Dell is still the chairman of the board, so he's going to be controlling a lot of the purse strings and making you check in to make sure that your grades are up and that you're not doing any of that crazy college kid stuff. So we're not quite there yet. But there's a lot of buzz in the industry about this. There's a lot of talk about where VMware is going to take it from here. There's actually a lot of talk about how this is going to affect Dell because Dell Technologies was a $100 billion valuation of a company. $64 billion of that valuation came from VMware. So now Dell Technologies, according to the reports, is a much leaner, streamlined entity that's worth two-thirds of or a third of what it was valued at before November the 1st. Now, Chris you and I have been heavily invested in VMware for a large portion of our careers. And as analysts, we kind of sit on the sidelines and watch all this stuff happen. I want to get your take on this. What does this mean, not only for VMware, not only for Dell, but for the users and the consumers out there? Yeah, I think it is big news. And it's definitely something that, you know, we're really looking at the tail end or, or maybe the new beginning of what's been a kind of a 17 year journey, right? Um, uh, obviously, VMware was bought by EMC pretty early on, back in 2004, um, when they were only, I think, six years old or so. And then um, in 2016, Dell bought them. And 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 this has been a conversation um, amongst our circles, anyway, that, that, that entire time, right? Um, what's going to happen? And there was talk, I think, a few years ago of, of Dell maybe talking about spinning VMware back out that didn't happen. And then now this time, the rumors became true. And I think what we're going to see here is exactly what the VMware execs have said, which is, hey, this allows us to be a little bit more neutral and play a little bit bigger in the cloud space. And obviously, um, when cloud started taking off, there was a lot of fear that VMware would become irrelevant, right? That people didn't need to virtualize their own uh, servers because they would just get to plump everything into the cloud. Um, so far, that hasn't quite happened. Uh, most uh, companies, at least for the midterm, but maybe for the long term, are sticking with a hybrid approach, uh, especially on the large side of, of, of the enterprise scale, where they want some things you know, in control in their own data centers, and then some things in a cloud or maybe multiple clouds. And, and I think that hybrid approach and kind of multi-cloud approach is definitely working for a lot of companies. 
and is going to continue for a long time. And so this being broken away from Dell is going to allow VMware, I think, to get deeper in those relationships with the cloud providers um, and, and continue to kind of um, play that software side of the game without having to worry about the hardware, which is, is obviously that's, that's where they play best. Yeah, and I mean, I, my analogy that I've always used for people when they ask me what my thoughts on the deal were is that Dell and EMC are like um, two older people who are maybe divorced or single who get together and get married because it's just, it, it's the best thing for both of them. But VMware was the stepchild that said, listen, you're good for my mom and I really appreciate everything that you do, but I am never going to call you dad. And that is kind of how it's felt because the fact that VMware has been making all of these projects that have been essentially trying to keep VMware relevant in a world where cloud is quickly becoming the, the de facto way that we do things means that they essentially have to say, we don't care about hardware support. We don't care what hardware you're using. And you know that had to make Dell angry because the only reason that you buy a software company like this is to convince them to continue to use your stuff. I mean, look at VxRail. That was literally using VMware on Dell Technologies hardware. We've seen that for years coming from companies like IBM. You use our hardware with our software on this stack. It's all one SKU and it all works out really well. That is not something that's easy to do. And it not only was causing problems for VMware on the Dell side of the house, but it was causing problems with their potential customers too. Because there's always the, um, <laughs> the elephant in the room of, well, when it comes time for us to run this on hardware, are you going to tell us that we can only run it on yours or that it runs best on yours? This was so hard for them to answer that they finally were like, you know what, enough is enough. And this is the other thing that I think that a lot of people aren't really kind of getting the full picture of, but maybe you and I do because we're analysts. It's not just the consumers that are upset about this, it's the investors. Mm. And if you've ever had to see any story about an activist investor, someone like a Carl Icahn who takes a stake in a company and then immediately starts trying to get it to sell off as many assets as possible so that the stock price goes up so that they can cash out their position, I think that this was something that Michael Dell was going to have to worry about very soon. Because as you recall, Michael Dell took Dell private. And I firmly believe the reason why he did that is because he got tired of listening to Wall Street and he had to answer to them more often than he wanted to. He had to take on a significant amount of debt in order to be able to buy EMC, which was a really good move. Let's not undersell that. Buying EMC was a brilliant move. And the fact that he had to leverage everything he owned to do it was just a cost of doing business. The value that could be unlocked by spinning out VMware was worth more than holding on to them. Yes, they were a profit stream. Yes, they were a very critical part of hybrid cloud infrastructure. And it was still more valuable for Dell to get rid of them. The timing of this is also extremely important. Dell could not do anything with VMware before September of this year. There was a period where they had to hold on to it that long for tax purposes. And the fact that they sold it off a month after that window expired means that this was the plan all along. We had all these speculations. I mean, you go all the way back to episodes of the Shalt IT rundown that we've recorded. Um, we were speculating, are they going to hold on to it? Are they going to sell it off? Are they going to cashier the uh, management and kind of turn it into a subsidiary? And the funny thing is, is that we got elements of all three of those. They held on to it as long as they had to. Pat Gelsinger left back in February to go back to Intel. I still firmly believe that Pat, knowing what was going on, had a huge heads up considering that the news came out not two months later that they were thinking about spinning it off. And I think Pat disagreed vehemently. And that's why he decided he wanted to go back to be the head of something bigger. Even 
as we've talked about over the years, Intel maybe not is not in the best position right now. But we get to the point where it's time to get rid of it and they sell it off and they sell it off in the way that made the most sense for everybody. We're going to pay ourselves to divest it and then use that money to pay down the debt. And when we get their debt off the balance sheet, suddenly we have something that people are going to want to invest in, which means we can refinance the debt, means we can pay off Silver Lake so that they're not breathing down our necks constantly. Because if there's one thing investors want to do, it's get paid. And then that means that we can chart a course that is very hardware focused, that is very um, narrow on what we want to do and not narrow in a negative way. Narrow as in we are laser focused. And then VMware can just go do whatever they want to do. And we're still going to have that relationship between them because effectively they become an arms dealer to everybody who's not doing public cloud. Nobody's going to want to cross them because you need VMware. I mean, let's face it. If you're not in the cloud, you're on VMware. Ain't nobody running Kubernetes internally unless you're doing it through Project Tanzu. So you kind of have to be on their good side. And now VMware has a little bit of wiggle room. They can negotiate better terms with companies. They can kind of drive things. Quite honestly, now that they don't have the yoke of Michael Dell's organization around them, if they decide they want to crush companies like Nutanix out of existence, they can do that. I'm not saying they will. I'm saying that they have the freedom to do that. It's a positive but it's a very guarded positive because I'm very curious to see how the industry takes this because you know what you lose when you get rid of Michael Dell's yoke of corporate oppression, you lose Michael Dell's yoke of corporate um, protection basically, because now if you miss a quarter, you're not folded in with all the rest of the results from the EMC Federation and the Dell hegemony and whatever we want to call it, you screwed up <laughs> and now you have to answer for it. And remember, you're publicly traded. You're not answering to Michael Dell. I mean, you are at the board meetings. You're answering to the investors. And I have never seen a harsher group of critics, except maybe the audience in American Idol, than Wall Street investors. And if you miss, they're going to hate you. So, Chris, I mean, where does this go from here? Where, where does VMware wind up? Yeah, it's an interesting question. It's going to be really exciting to kind of watch this unfold, I think, over the next few months and, and even into the year. Uh, they they did talk about you know this this new freedom to be able to maybe do some acquisitions that they wouldn't have been able to do otherwise, um, and, and then they then they talked they kind of referenced both um, hot new startups as well as maybe some some bigger companies that, that look like a safe bet. So that's where my head's at is that we're going to see VMware expand their portfolio through some acquisitions probably fairly quickly, um, and then depending on what those are, I think that'll kind of chart the direction of, of where VMware goes from here. So so that's what I'm watching out for. In general, it's definitely um, you know all the things you said are true, and and I really do think that that VMware has a has a chance here to, to flourish on their own as an independent company um, for all the reasons we've stated. Yeah, and I can guarantee you that whatever VMware decides to do, you will hear about it here on the Gestalt IT Rundown because we will be covering the news of any acquisitions, any earnings reports, um, any management changes, um, and whether or not Michael Dell just decides to buy an island somewhere and so he can compete with Larry Ellison in the lucrative island game. Um, we have some exciting things coming up this week that I wanted to make sure to take a moment to tell you about. The first one, of course, is Cloud Field Day number 12. We are holding that right now actually um, we are currently broadcasting it live over at techfieldday.com you can tune in and check out the list of presenters and the schedules you can also see the list of delegates who will be there in fact some of them are even in the room right now um, it's an exciting time where we're piloting our very first hybrid event where we have delegates in the room with some of the presenters in the room trying to get back to the tech field day in-person experience that you know from years past 
we're going to get there and the man to do it is mr stephen foskett which is why he's there right now instead of here with us and we wish you well boss we know you're going to do an amazing job next week we're looking at the open compute uh summit uh it's happening november 9th and 10th uh, i've already been getting some updates about some cool news that you're not going to want to miss uh, make sure you tune in uh, there and then also uh, Chris brought up that we're going to be seeing supercomputing 21 happening the week after that November 14th through the 19th in St. Louis. Um, that's really exciting. If you like big computers, I'm sure they're going to be talking a lot about that. So you're going to want to tune into that. Um, Chris, what are some of the things that you've got coming up that people should definitely be checking out? Yeah, well, I'm continuing to publish reports with uh, GigaOM, um, looking at new technology trends in networking and security. So definitely check those out. And for everything else, you can go to chrisgrenneman.com and, and see what's happening. Awesome. And I highly recommend that you go to chrisgrenneman.com, put it in your RSS feed reader, subscribe to him on LinkedIn. Chris has some amazing insights into things. I mean, honestly, it's why I love talking to him when we come here on the show. Um, I've also got a lot of stuff coming up. You always can find out some of the cool stuff that I do over at gestaltit.com, where I've been writing about some of our recent Tick Field Day event uh, presentations, as well as some analysis and briefings that I've been getting. Um, you can also check out episodes of the On-Premise IT Roundtable, where we get to kind of debate some interesting premises, like the ones that we talk about here on the show. In fact, we had some premises regarding what's going to happen to Pat Gelsinger and what's going to happen to VMware. Totally should go check those out and see if we were right. Um, somebody was right. I don't know if it was me or not, but <laughs> I'm used to being wrong at this point. And that's part of being an analyst is you don't always get it right. But what you do get right is watching the rundown every week at 1230 Eastern time on Wednesdays. Um, we publish this episode on our website at gestaltit.com. We also publish it on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash gestaltit video. So you definitely want to subscribe and click the notification button in case you uh, didn't set an alarm to check out the latest edition of the rundown. You can also subscribe to us in your favorite podcast application of choice. I know it's getting to be fall out there. Um, if you're going to be running, you want to make sure you wear a nice hat. You can get some gloves. But make sure you've got your earphones in so you can check out the rundown as you uh, make the block a couple of times and, and get your calories burned for the day. And remember that we will, we will be back next week with another great episode of The Rundown, more great news that you won't want to miss, and uh, maybe a few surprises. We'll have to see, because it's getting close to turkey day, so maybe I'll give you a nice recipe for a Cool Whip pumpkin pie. Yeah, we'll see if I can make that happen. Uh, so for Chris Grundeman, myself, Tom Hollingsworth, for our amazing staff here at Gestalt IT and our wonderful community that takes part in all of our fun every week, thank you very much for tuning in. We really appreciate it, and we look forward to seeing you next week. So have a great day. Have an amazing week. See you soon. <laughs>